Cable news, noisy, boring, out of touch. That's why Salem News Channel is different. We keep you in the know. Streaming 24-7 for free. Home to the greatest collection of conservative voices like Dennis Prager, Jay Sekulow, Mike Gallagher, and more. Salem News Channel is unfiltered and unapologetic. Watch anytime, on any screen at snc.tv and local now channel 525. Welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. We hope that God speaks to you today as we continue our study verse by verse, chapter by chapter through the Bible with Senior Pastor Will Ramirez. Today, as we continue with our study in the book of Acts, Paul tries to speak to the Jewish crowd to make his case for Christ, but things don't quite go according to plan. We'll pick it up in Acts chapter 22, verse 16. Once again, that's Acts chapter 22, verse 16. Verse 16, Ananias said to him, And now why do you tarry here? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Wait a second, I thought Paul is already saved. What's going on here? Why does he need to get baptized to wash away his sins? What's this talking about here? Well, I think if we examine this passage closely, it'll give some good understanding. First off, Ananias relates that when he was there, and this is extra information, by the way. This is not something we knew about from Paul's conversion in Acts 9. This is new information here. Paul tells us here the first time that after Ananias prays for him, is healed of his sight, and he tells him God's call for his life, Acts 9 just says he went out and got baptized. But here we see that he tells Paul, as Paul's kind of tearing there, the word there means to delay, implying a lack of decision. Now, what was Paul lingering on then? What was he delaying? He's already called on Jesus as Lord. He's already asked the Lord what he wants him to do. Plus, Ananias called him Brother Saul. So we know he's already made that choice to be saved. So what other decision is he putting off? Well, remember, when he's led into Damascus, he's there blind for three days, according to Acts 9, fasting and praying. And if we turn over to Acts 26, it actually gives us some more information about that time. In Acts 26, 16, right after, actually he leaves out the part here where he asks Jesus, what do you want me to do? Verse 16 of Acts 26 gives us more information that Jesus did not just tell him to go into Damascus. He actually gave him his call right there. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared unto you for this purpose to make you a minister and a witness, both of these things which you have seen and of those things in the which I will show unto you, delivering you from the people and from the Gentiles unto whom now I send you. Now you gotta think to yourself for just a moment, okay? Not only is Paul a good Jew, he is a Pharisee, okay? He is a law keeper, And the first thing he says to the Lord, oh, Lord, okay, I've been persecuting you. I'm sorry, what do you want me to do? And the Lord says, get up and go into Damascus. And guess what? I'm gonna call you to go reach out to the Gentiles. 
Paul has to be thinking, what twilight zone have I entered? Gentiles are dogs. They're, they're dirty, rotten dogs. You know, they're, they're, they're only created to keep hell hot. And now God's sending me out to go share the gospel with them, to go tell them, I just met you. Can we kind of take this a little slower? To open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan unto God, that they might receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith that is in me. I mean, this must have been a, a bombshell to Paul. Is it possible that there, as he's healed from his sight, as he's been fasting and praying, and God's been confirming, this is what I'm calling you to do. And then Ananias says he's called to do this, that he's not sure if he wants to. Is it possible he's trying to swallow this idea of being a minister to the Gentiles? Because he has to know at that point it's going to cost him everything. His position on the Sanhedrin, the prestige of being a Pharisee, you name it, it's all gone as soon as he makes his choice. Officially declaring his faith in Christ through public baptism is the final step off that cliff. And I think that's why Ananias says to him, why are you lingering here? You know, he says after that, why are you lingering here? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins. Get yourself baptized and get your sins washed away. It's a command there. Get yourself baptized and get your sins washed away. Calling on the name of the Lord. Now, from a basic reading of the English text, it looks like Ananias is telling Paul to get baptized so his sins will be forgiven. This is what is known as the doctrine of baptismal regeneration, that our sins are washed away in baptism and not sooner. Therefore, if you're not water baptized, you're not saved. Now, we reject that teaching, okay? We reject that teaching. But how does that mesh with this verse? You say, but that's what it looks like this verse says. Well, the language lesson here, and, and please bear with me because I think it's important because you're going to get cornered by some people at times who say, you need to be baptized to have your sins forgiven. If you haven't been water baptized, you're not forgiven. And they will use this verse. The phrase there, calling on the name of the Lord, is what's known as an aorist tense participle in the Greek language. To put it simple, it basically means that that action precedes the action of the verbs. They almost act like a noun. Like when we say Sam went to the store, went's the verb, Sam's the noun, the store's the direct object at the end, right? Everybody's like, oh my gosh, I'm out of here. <laughs> okay, I am out of here. A participle is, is a verb helper. And what it does is, is it, sometimes it can act like a noun, sometimes it can act like an adjective. But in this case, it acts like a noun. So it goes in the, actually in the front of the sentence, okay? So a better translation would be this. Having already called on the name of the Lord, get yourself baptized and get your sins washed away. Now that sounds a little better, doesn't it? Okay. Having already given your life to Christ, you should be baptized. That's what we tell people, right? Have you, have you given your life to Christ? Well, then you should get baptized and you should get baptized. If you've never been water baptized, you need to be obedient to the Lord and get water baptized. So since Saul is already saved by putting his faith in Christ, he needs to get baptized. Not the other way around. Not get baptized to get saved. You say, but hold on, sir, you still have not addressed the whole washing away of the sins part. Doesn't that still mean that baptism washes away our sins? Here's the interesting thing. The way language works is when you have calling on there preceding the two verb actions, it means those two verbs become separate actions. So it's not be baptized to get your sins washed away. It's do two separate things. Since you've already been saved, go get baptized and go get your sins washed away. Now, let me ask you a question. How do we get our sins washed away as a Christian? 
1 John 1, 9, right? If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to what? Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Very simple. Paul, you're already saved. You've already called in the name of the Lord, but you need to get yourself baptized and whatever it is that's holding you back right now, you need to confess it to the Lord and deal with it. That's all he's saying here. That's all he's saying here. Whatever it was that was holding him back from making this final choice to get baptized and accept God's call in his life to preach to the Gentiles, he says, you need to confess it for the Lord, get right with it, and move on. Now, you say, okay, Will, what are you talking about here? Why, why are you bringing that up? Well, we as Christians, we still sin after we get saved, right? And that's why 1 John 1, 9 is there. And so Paul may be a brand new believer, but whatever struggle he's having at this point in time, he needs to deal with it with the Lord. And so Ananias doesn't play around. He's like, you got a heavy call upon your life, dude. There's no more time to delay. Go get baptized and go confess this to the Lord so he can continue using you. And that's what this verse is talking about. It's very simple. And Paul, praise the Lord, that's exactly what he does. Because we read in Acts 9, he arose and he was baptized. So Paul did what he said. Now, Real quickly, I bring this up because there's a new teaching going around known as New Grace Reformation. And it states that since God has made us righteous by our faith alone in Christ, and all of our sins, past, present, and future, are forgiven. That's true. All that's true. But here's where it's wrong. They teach now, because of that, that the Holy Spirit no longer convicts believers of sin because God doesn't see us as sinners anymore. Believers never need to confess sin to God because it's all already forgiven. And that there's no need to repent of our sin. I bring this up because there's a local well-known pastor who is one of the driving forces behind this teaching. You may have seen a billboard recently, God is not angry. It's been on I-4 for a very long time. They just recently changed it. Now it says, God sees you, he loves you, and he loves what he sees. There's a problem with that because if you're not in Christ, God loves you, but he does not love what he sees. If you are not in Christ, You are lost. There is no righteousness. God sees me in all of my sin. And that being said, even though God sees me in the righteousness of Christ as a believer, that doesn't mean he loves everything he sees. I don't think there's applause in heaven when I lose my temper with my kids. I don't think the Lord is smiling when I'm unkind to my bride. The Spirit of God is coming to me saying, Will, I love you. Don't act this way. This is not right. This is not what I've called you to be. I've got something so much better for you. You need to repent and you need to change. The Bible clearly states that we as believers, 1 John 5 says these things are written, not that, not that because you don't believe, but were written unto you that already believe in the name of, the, of Christ. That believing in him, you might know that you have eternal life. So it's written to believers. 1 John 1, 9, if we, those who already believe in the name of the Son of God, confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And it clearly states here that Paul needed to confess sin and experience God's forgiveness even after being a believer. You say, but Will, they have a point. You know, if all of our sins have been forgiven and we've been completely justified by Christ when we get saved, how does what you're saying mix with that? Well, it's quite simply this. When Beverly and I made our vows to one another, we became husband and wife, right? We became husband and wife. We don't need to keep making vows to each other to stay married, all right? It's not like we wake up one morning and she goes, you know, I'm not doing it today. 
I'm, I'm just done, you know? I'm not doing it today. No, we made our vows and God made us one flesh. And what God said, what I've joined together, let no man separate. That's it, right? So that's a one-time deal with effects that last all the way on till death do us part. We don't need to keep making vows to each other to stay married. However, sometimes those vows are violated by our behavior. If we speak unkind words to each other, remember I, I promised that I would love her like Christ loves the church, right? Laying down my life for her. So every time I don't do that, I'm violating that promise. Anytime we have selfish actions with one another, we violate those, those vows. Now, we don't become unmarried by those violations, but when those violations take place, we need to go to one another and confess that failure and seek forgiveness. Why? Because those violations don't affect our marital status, but they do affect our relationship, don't they? If I just came to her and I said, you know, <laughs> I know I was unkind to you today, baby, but man, we took care of all that at the altar. I don't got to do nothing. We are married. Three hardest words to say. And they're not, I am sorry. Those are actually very easy words to say. I was wrong. And confession, the word confess, it means to say the same thing God says. Say the same thing that someone else says about it. When I confess my sins to the Lord, I'm saying is, God, you say this is wrong, and I agree with you. What I did was wrong. Will you please forgive me? And the Lord goes, you bet. And now our relationship, rather than being strained, is stronger because forgiveness is taking place. To be in a meaningful, growing relationship with anyone, there needs to be confession and forgiveness. There has to be. Our relationship with God is the same. All right, well, that heresy detour, we'll come back now to verse 17, actually. And Paul said, now it came to pass that when I was come again, when I returned to Jerusalem, even while I prayed in the temple, I was in a trance. Now, this would be three years later. Remember Paul, when he got saved, he ministered for three years in the Damascus Arabian region. And we know that he ministered to the Gentiles during that time. Peter and the rest of the guys were behind the curve. Paul had been ministering to the Gentiles from the very beginning. And so he says that when he finally returns three years later to Jerusalem, he was praying in the temple. Paul is making it clear that even though he put his faith in Christ, he still came to the temple to worship and pray. That he wasn't opposed to such things as his opponents claimed. Paul's not saying, well, you have to do that if you're a good Jew. What he's just saying is, I've never taught anybody you shouldn't do that or you can't do that. It's like today, you know, someone comes to me and says, you know, well, can Christians celebrate the Sabbath? Sure, as long as you're not trusting in it for your salvation. Can Christians celebrate the feast? Sure. I mean, I don't know if you're a Gentile, if it makes much sense to do that, but if you want to, fine, as long as you're trusting in Christ and Christ alone for your salvation. All those other things are, are personal convictions. They're all peripherals. Paul says, I, I still came to the temple and prayed, even though I was a Christian. And while there, he said, I was in a trance. Now, this comes from the same word in the Greek that means astonishment or shock. And it simply means to be granted a supernatural ability to see things beyond the natural world. It doesn't mean all of a sudden he got in a lotus position and started humming, okay? He, he was there and all of a sudden he had insight and vision into the supernatural world. And in this case, he saw the Lord Jesus. And I saw him saying unto me, verse 18, make haste, and get you quickly out of Jerusalem, for they will not receive your testimony concerning me. And I said, but Lord, 
They know that I am prisoned and beat in every synagogue, them that believe on you. And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I was also standing by and consenting unto his death. And I kept the raiment of them that slew him. But Jesus said unto him, depart, for I will send you far from here unto the Gentiles. Well, there is a preciousness to this conversation because it's so human. We think of Paul. I mean, Paul the apostle. But here he is arguing with the Lord. Paul is trying to reason with the Lord and tell him why he's wrong. That's what he's doing. Jesus says, get out of here. They're not going to listen to you. No, 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 no. You don't understand, Lord. I get them. I know where they're coming from. They will get me. There's a preciousness to that because, well, if Paul did it at one time, it gives me hope that God can change me too. That he can deal with me and all my stubbornness. That he's not offended by my disagreement so much as to cast me off in annoyance at the audacity of my doing so that he's patient with me, that he loves me, and that he's still working. But this also gives a little bit of insight into this struggle that Paul had with success. He really believed that he could get through to the Jewish people like no one else, enough to argue with the Lord about it. And that is flawed logic because Jesus doesn't make mistakes, does he? He doesn't make mistakes. But in this revelation, we see Paul's opposition to the Lord's commands about avoiding Jerusalem. They're not new to this visit we're talking about, not here, but in this chapter. It's not new. This has always been a struggle for him that he wanted to be here to preach to them. And the Lord kept telling him, stay away. So verse 21, Paul makes his objection and the Lord says, get out of here. (laughs) Depart for I will send you far from here unto the Gentiles. And you notice the Lord doesn't argue back with Paul. You ever do that as a parent? Your child contradicts you or they argue with you and you just start arguing back? It, that's not our job. Our job is look at them and go, are you going to obey me or not? Right? Because in the end, what you're looking for is that, is that they're going to honor the Lord by honoring his word. And the Lord comes to him. He doesn't give any explanations as to why his reasoning is wrong. He simply brings Paul back to his command. Leave, Paul. That's what I asked you to do. And without faith, the Bible says it's impossible to please God. I must trust that he knows what he's doing and I must do what he says. Now, Paul was doing pretty good until he uttered that very last word of verse 21, that Jesus said unto him, depart, for I will send you far from here unto the Gentiles. Uh Uh-oh. He had a captive audience, but once he says that word, chaos breaks loose. Verse 22, and they gave him audience unto this word. And then they lifted up their voices and said, away with such a fellow. The word that means destroy this man, execute him. Away with such a fellow from the earth, for it is not fit that he should live. And as they cried out, they cast off their clothes and they threw dust into the air. It was very common oriental response in that time. When an angry mob felt an injustice had been done, they would throw rocks, they would throw dust, they would scream and yell and tear their clothes until someone, the powers that be, did something about their complaint. And so verse 24, the chief captain, he commanded Paul to be brought into the fortress, the the castle there, and bade that he should be examined or interrogated by scourging so he might know why they cried so against him. What did this guy do? And as they bound him with thongs, Paul said unto the centurion that stood by, is it lawful for you to scourge a man that is a Roman and uncondemned? Now, this was 
the Roman method of torture designed to bring confession from the accused. This is how they solved their crimes. Men often died or were crippled for life afterwards. And because the captain didn't understand Hebrew, he had no clue what Paul had said. To incite a riot was a high offense, and so he assumes Paul has committed some crime to bring it about, and so he wants him to confess. This guy's playing games with me. The problem, though, with that decision is it was unlawful to scourge a Roman citizen. Even if he was found guilty, it was unlawful to scourge him. And so as they stretched Paul out there for the whips in preparation to be scourged, came very close to happening, Paul pulls his citizenship card and he goes, hey, is it lawful for you to do this to a Roman citizen who's not been condemned? I don't even had a proper trial. And so verse 26, when the centurion heard that, he went and he told the chief captain saying, you better be careful, take heed what you do. This guy's a Roman. The choices you make in the next few minutes are gonna determine whether you and I get to live, man. You better make some smart decisions. So the chief captain came unto Paul and he said unto him, tell me, are you a Roman? And Paul said, yes. And the chief captain answered and said, with a great sum I obtained this freedom. And Paul said, I was freeborn, man. Now, we will learn later that this captain's name is Lysias. That's a Greek name. So he was not a natural Roman citizen. Citizenship could be purchased by bribes, normally at great expense. And Lysias has to be wondering how this scrawny, beat-up Jew got his citizenship because the word there, you, is emphatic. You? How do, you, a Roman citizen? Paul says, man, I was freeborn. Now, that means that Paul's father was a Roman citizen. We are not told how, and I'm not going to speculate. Well, that point, verse 29, then immediately, straightway, they departed from him, which should have examined him. They, they took Paul out of that room, untied him from the, the pole. And the chief captain also was afraid after he realized that he was a Roman and because he had bound him. They knew that they were in big trouble. If Paul wanted to make a stink about this, not only would they lose their jobs, they would lose their lives. And so he has to figure out, though, what do I do? I've also got a riot going on, and that's not good for me either. And so on the morrow, verse 30, because he would have known the certainty, the exact truth of why Paul was accused by the Jews, why they were so angry at him, he loosed him from his chains and he commanded the chief priests and all their counsel to appear and they brought Paul down and set him before them. And so his hope is that maybe before the formal assembly of the Sanhedrin, there won't be a riot and he'll find out what their real problem is with Paul so he could figure out how to respond and what to do. And so while Paul has avoided a scourging, um, this is still not an ideal situation. He's incarcerated, and the Sanhedrin have a past of drumming up false charges against believers. So Paul is not out of the woods just yet. Now, a couple things in closing. This is exactly what the Holy Spirit warned Paul would happen if he went to Jerusalem, isn't it? You're not going to die, Paul. You're going to be in prison. <laughs> not death in a blaze of glory, as many are converted but chains. And it would be very easy to look at this and look at Paul and see total failure. You shouldn't even be here, Paul. You were wrong about being the best to get through to them. And while all of that is true, is that how God sees success? You know, in Joshua 1.8 is the only place in the Bible we find the word success. The only place. It's where God tells him, if you keep my word, you keep this book of the law, shall not depart out of your mouth. And if you keep the words therein, you'll be prosperous and have good success, right? It's the only place we find it used in the Bible. It means to act wisely and to handle things the right way. It defines success as faithfulness to the task at hand. 
while Paul wasn't obedient to the warning of the Spirit to stay out of Jerusalem, and there were consequences for that, was Paul really a total failure? Look down here in Acts 23, 11, because things get worse. And while Paul is in a place where he's really down and he really realizes he blew it, the Lord comes to him in Acts 23, 11 and says these words, be of good cheer, cheer up, Paul. For as you have testified of me in Jerusalem, so must you bear witness also at Rome. And into the midst of this dismal result, the Lord says there was at least one area that Paul was faithful, and it was in the message. He didn't compromise the message. And in the midst of all the things he shouldn't have done, this is the only thing the Lord says to him. And I want to encourage you with that. Listen, we need to obey the Lord. We need to walk in the Spirit. If the Spirit's warning us not to do something, you should not do it. But we do fail sometimes, and that doesn't make us failures. It makes us a work in progress. You see, even when a painting isn't finished, you can see some of the beauty that the artist is weaving. And there is beauty in Paul's faithful testimony of Jesus. There is beauty in his great love for his own people. And so don't get so caught up in your own imperfections or the lack of impact or greatness in your life. Keep growing. Stay close to the Lord. Keep humble and let the Lord finish his work. Because what's the theme of Acts? Jesus is still working, right? He's still working in you, amen? Lord, we are so grateful that with all our failures, you extract those precious things that come from a heart of love for you. Help us to stay in the race, Lord, knowing that you'll never let us go. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. This has been In the Word with Pastor Will Ramirez, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com or on the Calvary Chapel Orlando app, available on iTunes and Google Play. If you have any spiritual or physical needs, please contact us. We would love to pray for you and assist you in any way we can. You can reach us at Calvary Chapel Orlando at 407-523-0800 during our office hours, Tuesday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. Thank you for joining us today. We will see you next time as we continue to learn, walk, and live in the Word. Strong.